You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Hey, I'm just curious, how many of you growing up as kids, maybe for Christmas, for your birthday, got a magician's kit? Anybody? Man, I thought there'd be all of you. I thought a lot of you would raise their hands. Magician's kit. I remember when I got my very first one for Christmas one time, and it was full of everything you would need to be a successful magician. It had the cape, it had the hat, it had a magic bag, it had the magic wand. It was just full of all kinds of tricks, books on how to do amazing uh, card tricks. And I immediately began kind of practicing all the tricks that came with it, especially the ones that I thought were really cool. One of the coolest magic tricks involved two bowls. Now, one bowl was empty. The other bowl was filled with rice. And you would take the two bowls and you would put them together, tap it with your magic wand. You would take off the top bowl and then the rice would just overflow onto the table, kind of giving it the illusion that you had doubled the amount of rice in that bowl. The secret was there was this, and I know as a magician, you know, you're not supposed to reveal your secrets. I know that that is taboo, but I'm going to go against that this morning. And I was going to tell you, the secret was there was this thin plastic cover that laid over the empty bowl, which no one could see, at least you hope not. And then you would put the empty bowl over the rice, turn it around, tap it, and then of course, you know, because that plastic cover's on there, the rice couldn't go into the bottom bowl. All it had left to do was just overflow all over the table, again, giving that illusion that you had doubled the amount of rice uh, in that bowl. There were rope tricks, there were card tricks, there were making balls disappear under cups, putting an object in the magic bag, making it disappear. You'd kind of pull it out, the object isn't there, you'd put it back in, you know, tap it with your magic wand, you'd pull it out, and there is the object. Um, So when I would prepare to do a show, I wanted really to only kind of include in my magic show the tricks that were really destined to impress people. Uh, They were the coolest tricks, and so I would just kind of start off with the best one first in order to really kind of impress the crowd, which just usually comprised of my brothers, my sister, neighborhood kids. So as the show kind of went on, obviously the tricks kind of became less and less impressive. Now I tell you this story Because one of the most interesting and puzzling aspects regarding how Jesus first comes onto the scene as he begins his ministry involved doing a miracle. That among all of the miracles that Jesus did really wasn't all that impressive, at least kind of what I think. Now, to further illustrate my point, I want you to kind of imagine that you have been appointed by God to be the PR agent for Jesus. Not that he needed one, but just use your imagination. Your public relations firm has been given the job of planning how Jesus is going to debut or how he's going to enter into his earthly ministry. And so your team is met together and you're kind of mulling over all of the options that you have and your team kind of decides the best way for Jesus to debut in his earthly ministry is to do a miracle. And not just any miracle, but something 
big. I mean a miracle that's got a lot of razzle-dazzle because nothing is going to get the attention and the adoration of a crowd like a spectacular miracle. And actually, as a part of that team, I mean, you would begin to think about the most extravagant, in-your-face, front-page headline miracle that Jesus could perform. And, and again, the cylinders are firing ideas. They're just racing around in your mind like crazy. And someone says, hey, I know, let's have him raise someone from the dead, which he eventually does. Someone else says, let's, let's have him feed thousands and thousands of people with a happy meal, which he eventually does, twice I might add. Somebody else says, hey, let's have him walk on water, which he eventually does. One thing everybody agrees on is the miracle must be spectacular. It's got to be over the top. Go big or go home, right? That's why the story we're going to study today, the miracle we're going to look at this morning it's just puzzling because to me, far from being spectacular, it is probably one of the simplest, most unnoticeable miracles Jesus ever does. As a matter of fact, it looks more like magic than it does a miracle. And this is what Jesus chooses to do to kind of debut his earthly ministry. Jesus and his disciples are at a wedding. Host runs out of wine. All the stores are closed. His mother asks for help, and Jesus transforms six jugs of water into wine, and that's it. That's his ministry, his earthly ministry debut. That is his first time up to bat. Now, when you look at that, compared to all of the other miracles that he did, it's not a home run. It's not even a triple, maybe a double, but probably a single. On top of that, you kind of add the fact that Jesus performs a miracle involving alcohol. That is the only miracle Jesus performed that makes some church people very uncomfortable. And instead of trying to understand the miracle and enjoy it. Some people spend more time trying to figure out how to turn the wine back into water. And the reason we have been dealing with the miraculous to begin with is because we're in a series called Naturally Supernatural. And one of the hallmarks of the life and ministry of Jesus was both the quality and the quantity of the miracles that he performed. And in this series, we're trying to look at and ask and answer some questions like why are miracles important? What do they teach us? Is Jesus still in the miracle working business today? And even though this appears to be the simplest miracle that Jesus ever performed, I kind of find it one of the most practical miracles Jesus ever performed. Let me tell you why. Jesus performed this miracle for one reason and one reason only. They ran out of wine at the wedding. And I'm going to share with you in just a moment why that was such a big deal. Because this particular wedding, I want you to think of this as a metaphor of life. The problem in this wedding was they were running on empty. And folks, you and I both know if you've lived long enough that you're going to learn eventually every wedding, every life eventually runs out of wine. You're going to find times in your life, and you may be there now, 
where you're literally kind of running on empty, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. You've got problems you can't even begin to solve. Maybe you're in a crisis and you are just in over your head. You maybe have dug yourself a hole and the only thing you're doing right now is just digging that hole deeper. Some of you may feel like you're kind of at the end of your rope. You're kind of running on empty. And all of us have been there, I think, a time or two. And if that's where you are, then this is what I want you to take away from the message this morning. Our problems are God's possibilities. When we come to the end of self is where God often begins. This miracle, as simple as it is, gives us one of the most profound lessons on what to do when we are running on empty, when we are just depleted mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And it's one of the simplest messages you'll find anywhere in the Bible. In fact, it gives us a formula that I don't think will ever fail. And this is one of those messages I would just encourage you, write it down in the front of your Bible, you know, tape it to your iPhone, your iPad, the next time the unexpected crisis pops up, and it will. The next time life goes south when you're driving north, remember a wedding, a woman, water, and wine. And if you'll do the following, I think you'll see the supernatural also take place in your life. First thing that you do, Turn to Jesus when you have a problem. John chapter 2, beginning at the first verse. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, what was the problem? Well, the wine was gone. Why was that such a big deal? Well, back then, in those days... Wine was to a wedding what cake is to the wedding today. I mean, can you imagine coming to a wedding and there being no wedding cake? And let's be honest, isn't that what a lot of us go for? I mean, we want to see the, the ceremony, yeah, 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 yeah. We want to get to the cake. Nothing would be more embarrassing in a wedding. Nothing would be probably a greater disappointment than to go to a wedding and there's no cake. In Bible days, they didn't have wedding cake. They had wedding wine. And the number one faux pas would be to run out of wine. The celebration, I mean, it would just instantly deteriorate into humiliation. Now, was it a problem of life and death? No. But it was a real problem nonetheless. The same thing is true for us. I mean, the vast majority of problems you and I encounter on a day-to-day -day basis, they're not life and death problems. They're real problems. I mean, losing your job or losing your car keys is not the same thing as losing your life. But they are real problems. You know, facing a lawsuit or even jail is not like facing death, but it's still a real problem. And what is important is not the problem that you face. What is important is how you face those problems. And evidently, Mary, Jesus' mother, she was apparently the hostess of this wedding, or maybe she's a wedding coordinator, if you will. But for some reason, Mary is in a position. She has a responsibility in this wedding 
where she feels she is responsible for the wine running so low that she feels compelled and motivated to do something about it. She did not want any embarrassment to come to her, to her friends, to the bride and the groom. And Mary does exactly the first thing any of us ought to do when we face problems. She turns to Jesus. No, no, she didn't push the panic button. She doesn't go ballistic. She doesn't scream. There's no, you know, obvious rise in her blood pressure. She's not ripping her hair out. She simply turns to Jesus and says, here's the problem. Now, I, I know to a lot of you that sounds really simple and elementary, but let's all be honest here. What do we do, usually do? What is our, our first response when a crisis hits? It's really to kind of do the obvious, isn't it? Where she took the problem to Jesus first, don't we normally take the problems to Jesus last? Isn't it our tendency to kind of turn to everybody and everything else before we turn to Jesus? I mean, we'll even say things like, well, if all else fails, let's pray. You know, as if prayer is kind of the last alternative. We've done everything else that matters. We've done everything else that we think will work. It didn't. Now we're kind of relegated to prayer. I and mean, that's kind of how we approach this. I do that, you do that, we all do that. By the way, there's a great lesson we can learn right here. God wants to hear about every problem that we have. And I know you may be thinking, well, he already knows all of the problems I'm having. That's true. He's trying to draw you into a relationship with him by you and he talking about the problems you're going through. That is why at times God will allow problems to come into your life. He's hoping that that may draw you nearer to him. We all know God is powerful enough. If he wanted to, he could keep our lives problem-free. If he wanted to, he could make sure we never, ever face another illness. We never have another problem. We never deal with any more difficulties. He could make our lives all pleasure, no pain, all sunshine, no rain, all roses, no thorns. You ever thought about what would happen if God did that, if that were true? We would never turn to God for anything. The problems, trials, difficulties are opportunities for us to connect with God at a deeper level, to, to develop our relationship with him, invite him into those areas of our lives, invite his leadership into those areas of our lives. It's like the lottery. If some of you ever won millions playing the lottery, God would never hear from you again. Problems, trials, and difficulties, again, tend to move us more and more towards God and partnering with him, becoming a co-worker with him, learning to lean on and trust him as he leads us perfectly. Now, we can do that in the good times, absolutely. We can, and I know many of you do. But let's be honest, we tend to minimize or forget about God, his role in our lives when things are going good. I remember growing up, there was a song by Morgan Cryer. It was a long, long, long time ago. And, and the, the, the name of the song was, you're to blame for the good things, for the good things in my life. You're the reason it's all right. 
And we, we never think about God in those terms. We always wonder, where is God in the difficult times? We never wonder, where is God in my good times? Again, our tendency is to kind of, you know, draw more and more closer to God in the tough times. So we need to learn to turn to Jesus. Second thing we need to do when we're running on empty is talk to Jesus about the problem. Doesn't do much good to turn to him if you're not going to also talk to him about the problem you're going through. Listen again to exactly what Mary did. John 2, verse uh, 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. It's been said, a problem well stated is a problem half solved. That is true. And that's exactly what Mary did. She tells Jesus exactly what the problem is. Do you know why this was such a big problem? Well, in wedding days, a wedding was the social, in Bible days, a wedding was the social event on any Jewish calendar. If you were invited to a wedding, you really didn't have a choice not to go. It wasn't optional. You had to go. I mean, it was practically a kind of a social felony if you didn't go. There was no bigger event, no bigger social happening in Jewish life than a wedding. Now, a wedding ceremony in Jesus' day, like ours, would kind of begin at sundown in the synagogue, there in the church. And then the entire wedding party would leave the synagogue, and they would begin this candlelight procession right through the middle of town. And the couple would be escorted past as many homes as possible so everyone could come out and meet and congratulate them. After the procession, the couple didn't go on a honeymoon. The honeymoon was brought to them. They went home to a huge party. And this party would last for several days. There would be gift giving, speech making, food eating, wine drinking. There, there, the place would just be kept full of food and the glasses would be kept full of wine. Actually, in Jesus' day, if you ever had a visitor in your home in Bible days, your, your responsibility as a, a host or a hostess was always to keep the glass of your visitor full. And if you ever let that cup, that glass, run dry, it was a message to the visitor, it's time to go. And that's kind of an interesting, kind of a polite way of doing that. So if the food kind of ran out before you were ready for them to go, it was kind of a tremendous insult. Now get ready for this. It's worse than an insult. Hospitality at a wedding was considered such a sacred duty that the master at the wedding, who you might want to call the master of ceremonies, would actually be sued for a breach of hospitality. That's right. If you ran out of food or wine before it was proper, you could be sued. Some things never change, do they? (laughs) That's why Mary kind of makes this urgent 911 call to Jesus. They ran out of wine. Also, can't leave out Jesus' response to Mary in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Now, again, and probably even the way I read that response kind of triggers, you know, some ideas in your mind about how Jesus was responding to her. And the way sometimes people read the response of Jesus kind of leaves the impression that Jesus is kind of irritated or annoyed by his mother's request. Now, that that phrase in, in Jesus' day 
what does this have to do with me? It was a very common conversational verse in those days. Now, if you would have said that with, with anger and sharpness in your voice, it did kind of communicate a certain level of disagreement and rebuke. However, if you were to take that same phrase and you were just to speak that gently and softly, it indicated not so much a, a rebuke, but rather a conveyance of misunderstanding. Jesus' response to Mary, it's not a rebuke. It's just saying to her, you're kind of misunderstanding. So when Jesus says to his mother Mary, woman, what does this have to do with me? He's really saying, Mary, don't worry. Don't worry. You don't fully understand everything that's going on here, and that's okay. But just leave it to me. I'm going to take care of it. Don't you worry I got it all under control, even though it may not look like it right now. I have a plan. That was what was intended by Jesus' response to Mary. When Jesus goes on there to say, my hour has not yet come, what Jesus was saying was, it wasn't yet time for him to completely reveal himself as who he was, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now again, I don't want you to miss the bigger picture here. Mary has a problem. She turns to Jesus with the problem, talks to Jesus about the problem because she knew something about Jesus that you and I need to learn about Jesus, know about Jesus, and remember about Jesus, and it is this, what matters to me matters to Jesus. See, I, I, as I read the story, I kind of think, okay, you ran out of wine, so what? Move on to some other things. But this mattered to Mary. And because it mattered to Mary, it mattered to Jesus. You know, some of the things you may be facing right now, you may be kind of sitting there thinking, oh, these are just so trivial. They're really no big deal, and I really don't think I need to bother Jesus with this. No, 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 no. Part of what Jesus wants to communicate to you and I in this story is if it matters to you, it matters to Jesus. I know most of you believe that about all the big stuff like cancer and bankruptcy and divorce. But Jesus also cares about grouchy bosses, flat tires, lost dogs, broken dishes, late flights, toothaches, and ruptured discs. Let me ask you a question. Why does Jesus do this as his first miracle? I mean, why does Jesus use this opportunity to change water into wine? Did he do it to impress the crowd? No. The story in John tells us most of those who attended the wedding didn't even know he had done it. Did he do it because he had to? No. Well, he did it because his reputation was on the line. No. He did it to prove he was the son of God. No. That is why he didn't want to do it. That's why he said, my time has not yet come. He did it because he cared. He did it to prove, to show, to demonstrate, to reinforce to you and me, if it matters to us, it matters to him. If it mattered to Mary, it mattered to Jesus. He did it to show that our problems are his possibilities. A verse I know a lot of you are familiar with. I'm sure if you highlight in your Bibles, this is one of those verses you've highlighted Verse Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. That's pretty simple, but very profound. 
you know why you can bring all your cares and all your problems, big and small, to Jesus? Because he cares for you. If you care about it, he cares about it. What matters to you matters to him. So turn to Jesus with your problem. Talk to Jesus about your problem. And then third, trust Jesus to handle the problem. The next thing Mary does is probably the most important of all. There's one thing you and I have to do when the marriage is empty, the bank account is empty, you have nothing left and you, uh, in the tank of your heart, and it is found in the next thing Mary says. Mary said to the servants in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. That is the greatest piece of advice. Those five words. Greatest piece of advice ever recorded in the Bible. It is called obedience. It is the best advice ever given in history. You don't have a problem right now in your life that Jesus cannot solve if you will do whatever he tells you. Wives, do whatever he tells you. Husbands, do whatever he tells you. Parents, do whatever he tells you. It applies to everyone in every sphere. At this point in the miracle, Mary has no idea what Jesus is going to do. But she was quite sure he would do the right thing. That should be encouraging to the rest of us. No matter what is going on in your life, and you have no idea how Jesus is going to resolve it, you can be confident that Jesus will do the right thing. May not always be what we think or expect or hoped for, but we can always be assured it will be the right thing, the best thing for us and for our situation. Again, marriages would be transformed if we would just learn to do what Jesus tells us to do. Our finances would be changed if we would just do what Jesus tells us to do. Parents, our children would be happier and healthier if we would just do what Jesus tells us to do. Have you ever wondered why so many people who claim to know Jesus and say they follow Jesus aren't happy and are not full of joy? They seem to have the same frustration, same depression, same problems that people without Jesus have. And I'm not saying this is true for everybody at every time, but I will tell you the number one reason is so true. So many followers of Jesus don't have very much joy in their life because they're not doing what Jesus tells them to do. Too many of us know what Jesus wants us to do. We just don't want to do it. Jesus said in John 13, 17, he said, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Or blessed, it's the same word there. If you know these things, blessed are you, happy, full of joy are you if you do them. So let's see how this works, picking up in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rituals of purification, and each holding 20 or 30 gallons I might add at this point, when you, you know, do the math on that, he, he is going to supply more wine than they could ever drink at 10 weddings. 
You know, and, and that's the beauty about Jesus. When, he, when he, he meets your need, he just doesn't barely meet your need. He meets your need and then gives you an excess. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, which had now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew were servants. When we do what Jesus tells us to do, we'll know. We'll know where this miracle came from. We'll know who did this. We'll know who to give the glory, the honor, and the blessing to. So he takes it to the master of the feast, called the bridegroom, and said to him, the, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. That's true, they did. And then when the people have drunk freely, then they'll kind of bring in the poorer wine. But you have kept the best for last. Did you notice the water was not turned into wine until the jugs were filled completely to the brim the way Jesus requested? Sometimes we get it backwards. We think obedience follows blessing. The truth is, the reality is, blessing follows obedience. Let me just give you kind of a couple of examples. When I get my bills paid, get completely out of debt, and got plenty of money to spare, then I will start giving God a tithe. Here's another one. When I get my problems straightened out and I get my act together and I'm living a pretty decent life, then I'll go back to church. Here's another one. When my wife begins to be the wife she ought to be, then I will be the husband I ought to be. That kind of elicited a little chuckle out there. Confession time, anyone? <laughs> Do you know what happens in all of those circumstances? People never tithe. They don't go back to church, and the marriages just kind of go on the same as usual. Why? Obedience doesn't follow blessing, but blessing follows obedience. When you do obey God and do what God tells you to do, you can expect God to come through. Jesus tells the servants to draw out some of this water, take it to the master's ceremonies to taste. Now, you wouldn't know it, again, because this isn't something that's common in our culture, but Jesus was really asking them to do a very dangerous thing here because those jugs normally held water that was used to wash dirty feet to dirty hands, not wine for a wedding. These men could have been sent to prison for doing such a reckless, disgraceful act as taking dirty water to the master of ceremonies that was expecting sparkling wine. Do you see what happened? The water became wine after they obeyed, not before they obeyed. Now, I think there's a, also a deeper spiritual significance to these six stone pots. According to Jewish teaching, the number seven is the number that represents perfection, completion. The number six represents that which is unfinished and imperfect. Now, those six water pots were used for the Jewish ritual of purification, of washing dirty feet and hands. And those water pots, in a, in a, in a spiritual sense, they represented all of the imperfections. Again, that number six of the Jewish law. Jesus, among other things, came to do away with the imperfections of the law and to put in their place the new wine of God's grace. That's why really in some ways this is a pretty amazing debut. Jesus was foreshadowing 
A time in the very near future when he would change the imperfections of the law into the perfection of God's grace. One final point I want to make regarding this miracle. Jesus tells the servers to take the water pots to fill them with water. And again, after the servers do this, Jesus tells them to take some of it out of it and take it to the head waiter. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which Jesus miraculously turned into wine, the head waiter announces that everybody else serves the best wine first. And then after men have drunk freely, then serve the wine, which is poorer in quality. And then he makes this statement, but you have kept the best for last. So what? Listen to that line again, folks, because it tells us something about our great God. You have kept the best for last. That is, my friends, God. God always saves the best for last. No matter what is happening in your life, no matter how good or horrible things are going with God, his promise is that he is keeping the best for last. And folks, in the grand scheme of things, if you step back and you look at life in a big picture, his best for last is heaven. No matter how good things are on this earth, no matter how great things are going in your life right now, there is no comparison to the realities, the beauty of heaven that is to come. Psalm 84.10 says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day in God's presence than a thousand elsewhere. If I were to ask you to close your eyes and just imagine the most beautiful, peaceful, gorgeous, spectacular, awe-inspiring place, a thousand days there doesn't even come close in comparison to one day in heaven because heaven is so glorious. Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 2.9. He said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. If you can imagine it in your mind, it's not even anywhere close to how great and grand it is with God. Heaven is so spectacular, it is so glorious that our imaginations can't even begin to do it justice. No matter how awesome the image is in your mind of heaven, Paul says you're not even close. Heaven is much, much more glorious than that. How do we know that? Because God always saves the best for last. The Bible tells us the streets alone are made of solid gold. We usually mainly use cement for our streets, but God uses pure gold. And if God uses pure gold for the, the streets, I mean, imagine what he must use for our dwelling places. The houses we live with here are built with human hands. The places in heaven are, 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 are untouched by human hands. Translation, there's no flaws in the construction Nothing in this life, no matter how majestic or spectacular, compares with the splendor and the glory of heaven. And that is why Jesus came. That is why Jesus was born. He came from heaven to make a way for you and I. That when we come to the end of this life, we have that entrance. We have that, made, that way made for us. Jesus, he came he lived, he died. So I, I love that scripture verse where Jesus compared his 
uh, body to the temple veil. He talks about his human body kind of being that temple veil. You remember when he met with those disciples? He talked about his body being broken. And you remember when he died, that temple veil was rent in two. And what did that mean? It meant that, that that temple veil that separated man, sinful man, from a holy God, that there was no longer that separation that we could enter into a relationship with Almighty God. And know that when this life comes to an end, there is an eternal life. There is a resurrected body awaiting us. God saves the best for last. Do you see why the greatest gift you could give yourself this Christmas is the gift of Jesus. The gift of saying yes to Jesus. I want your best for my life. I want your forgiveness for all of my sins. I want you to wipe the slate clean. He can do all of that and more this morning. If you'll just reach out to him and just invite him in. Invite him into your situations, both good and bad. Give him control of your life. And I'll tell you what, he'll begin to do the miraculous for you as he did for those at that wedding in Canaan. Amen. Let's stand this morning. Invite the worship team to come back up on the platform. And Father, we just thank you so much. The Lord, again, I believe every miracle was not just a miracle to be done and a miracle to be inspired by as we are, but every miracle was, was there to teach us something, to give us a message. And God, again, I think the simplest message that I can take away from this is again, it's just that reminder that what matters to me matters to you. What's important to me is important to you. So Father, this morning, I just, I ask, Lord, whatever barriers, whatever obstacles, whatever burdens anyone in this place may be carrying this morning, Father, I just ask, Lord, that again, you would just reveal that simple truth to their hearts this morning. That, God, you care, that they matter to you. That, God, you have a plan. You have a purpose for what they're going through. You may not be the author of it, but, God, you're able to redeem it, to use it, to bring about good. So, Father, I just pray for people this morning that just need to hear that message afresh and anew. God, I just pray that that would just penetrate their heart this morning. That, God, it would just cause them uh, to turn to you, God, maybe in a way they never have before. And just to invite you in at a much deeper level than they ever have before. And just to say, God, I, I tried to do this all on my own. And, God, I, I just, I'm making the mess bigger and deeper. And, God, I need help. And, God, that you would come. That, God, you would just begin to move and to do miracles. God, I just pray, Lord, as, as they begin to sense that moving there, God, that they would just, again, take that advice that Mary gave to the servants. Do whatever he tells you to do. God, that's where we need the strength. We, need, we just need the courage, the boldness, the steadfastness, the faithfulness, God, to do whatever you tell us. So, Father, this morning we just ask, Lord, that you would come and just renew that steadfastness, that faithfulness in us, God, that we want to be obedient to your word, to your will, and to your ways. 
Father, we just thank you that because you loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus for us. And Father, for those of us who have received Jesus, Father, we say thank you again over and over again. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Lord, for those who have maybe yet to do that this morning, God, I pray, Lord, that you would just inspire such faith that by the moving of your Holy Spirit, that God, this morning, they would receive the gift of Jesus for the first time. We just thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.